Welcome to the Beeson Podcast coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I'm your host, Kristen Padilla, and I'm here today without my co-host, Doug Sweeney. He is actually representing Beeson Divinity School away from the school, but don't worry, he will be back with us next week. Today's guest comes all the way from England, and we are very happy that he is with us and ministering to our students. But before I tell you about who it is we have on the show, allow me to give you a brief update as to what's been happening here at Beeson. Beginning this fall, we will begin offering a few evening courses. And going forward, we will have even more evening course offerings for those who are enrolled in the Master of Arts in Theological Studies and the Master of Divinity programs. This will allow those who want to pursue a seminary education while working a full-time job to do so. These classes will still be held in person on our campus. So you or someone you know who's interested will need to live in or near Birmingham to participate. But if this option opens the door for you to pursue a seminary degree, then please contact us. You can reach our admission office at 205-726-2227 or visit our website at beesondivinity.com admission. And secondly, while I'm talking about our degree programs, if you are interested in our new forthcoming PhD program, then I hope you will sign our interest form so that you can be the first to know all the important details regarding the program and admission. You will be able to find this link in our podcast episode details on our website, beesondivinity.com podcast, or by going to our news page, beesondivinity.com news, and searching for our PhD story in our archive. You won't have to search for long, it's still a relatively new news story. Well, let me tell you about who we have on the show today. Today's guest is the Reverend Dr. Chris Wright. Dr. Wright is the Global Ambassador for Langham Partnership. This is a global movement of Christ followers fulfilling the Great Commission by equipping and resourcing indigenous leaders around the world to multiply disciples in their families, churches, and communities. Dr. Wright is also a missiologist, Old Testament scholar, Anglican priest, and you may know him because he's a published author. By, you may know him by one of his many books. So we're so glad to have you with us on campus and on the show today. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Thank you so much, Kristen. It's great to be here. Thank you. Well, Dr. Wright, as I've already uh, alluded to, many of our listeners may know you from your books, um, but there are some listeners who may be hearing your name for the first time. So I gave a proper um, bio of you, but I wonder if you can introduce yourself more personally. Where are you from and how did you come to faith in Jesus Christ? Okay, yeah, thanks Kristen, good. Yeah, well, if uh, anybody's interested, the accent comes from Northern Ireland. That's where I was born and grew up. I'm a Belfast boy, really, by origins, although I now live in, in uh, London and England. So I'm Irish, but not English, but living in Britain, if that makes any sense. Uh, yeah, I um, came to faith as a, as a boy, really. I think I was about five or six. My parents had been missionaries in Brazil, and I've got older siblings. Uh, and one Sunday after church, I remember my older brother asking me if my name was in the Lamb's Book of Life. 
I'm not sure I probably understood what he meant, but he explained that I needed that Jesus would know my name so that I could go to heaven and so on. So I said, well, how do you do that? And he told me to uh, open my heart to Jesus and ask him to forgive my sins, and I did. Uh, and so I've known that I'm a Christian ever since then, really, from childhood. So it's a great blessing and privilege, really, to have grown up in a Christian home from that early age. Um, so then, yes, I went to school and everything in Northern Ireland, but I did my university degrees in England and Cambridge, uh, and then got married. My wife's called Liz. We've been married now 52 years, believe it or not. Um, I'll be 53 this year. Uh, so we've got four grown-up children. Them are all married, 11 grandkids. We spent a few years in India. You might want to talk about it a bit later. I was teaching uh, theology there in India. And uh, then at All Nations Christian College, which is a missionary training college in England. I was there for 13 years. And then now uh, these last 20-something years with the Langham Partnership. Hmm, wonderful. Um, some of our listeners, and I know even still some of our students, are in that discernment process, discerning what is it that the Lord is calling me to or to become. And I mentioned you're a missiologist, a priest, and an Old Testament scholar. So I wonder how, if you can tell us how the Lord led you in each direction and how those vocations all complement one another. Mm, thank you. Yes, well, they go and almost the opposite direction to the order you put them in because uh, the first one really would have been an Old Testament scholar and that happened because after my first degree which was in classics and then in theology in Cambridge I went back to Northern Ireland and I was teaching in high school but there's a, a, an institution called Belfast Bible College and the principal then asked if I would take some evening classes for just general public on different subjects as a theology graduate and one of the topics he asked me to do was Christian ethics and I'd not actually studied that in my degree, but I thought, well, that's okay. I'll read a few books, you know, bone it up, and then I can teach that. It's okay. So I looked around for books on Old Testament ethics. I thought I should start with the Old Testament, talk a bit about the new, and then go on to current issues. But I couldn't find any books on Old Testament ethics as such. So I wrote to my supervisor back in Cambridge, because I was thinking of doing a PhD, to ask him, did he think that Old Testament ethics would be a good topic to do PhD research on? And he said, well, it probably would because nobody's written anything on it for 50 years, which was true at that time. This was going back to the 1970s. So that's how I ended up doing my doctorate work on the economics of the Old Testament. That is, laws to do with land and debt and slavery and interest and all of those sort of things to do with wealth and poverty in the Old Testament. So basically then I got my doctorate in Old Testament studies and that fascinated me and I just remained a great fan of those scriptures ever since. So then while I was doing those, this is sort of the, the second piece of discernment really, we, I was doing them in Cambridge and we belonged to a local uh, Anglican church. Now actually I grew up in Belfast, my wife and I both grew up in a Presbyterian church. Uh, so I was basically born and bred Presbyterian. But in England at that time, uh, in the 1970s, the Presbyterian Church, certainly in Cambridge, was, was pretty dead I mean, in terms of sort of theology. And the church at the end of our street was a, a Church of England, Anglican Church, which was lively, it was evangelical, the vicar welcomed us and got me uh, leading Bible studies, preaching from time to time, involved with him in, in the church. And bit by bit he began to say, was, would I consider ordained pastoral ministry in the church? Um, which I had, which I'd always been sort of open to, but never really considered until they began to push me in that direction. So in a sense, that calling came from people in the church who discerned something in me that they thought could be used in, in the ordained ministry. 
So I ended up then thinking, well, okay, if I'm now a member of the Church of England, I might as well stay in it. Even though one time when I went back to Belfast and one of my aunts heard that I'd moved from the Presbyterian Church to the Anglican Church, and she said to me, I hear you've changed your religion, she said, <laughs> which wasn't quite true. Um, so that's how I ended up in the Church of England, the Anglican Church, um, and was ordained and, and did, um, yeah, nearly five years in pastoral ministry as a, an associate pastor or a curate, as it's called, in England, in a church down in the south of London. South of London. And then while I was there, um, I was invited again, it came to, to go to India to teach and therefore to, in that sense, become a, a, a missionary. I never really liked that word because I thought if I go and teach theology in a seminary in India, what makes me different from if I go and teach in a seminary in Britain? You know, I mean, I'm doing the same job, but all I've had is a jet flight and I become a missionary. Um, I've always thought that mission is something for, for every Christian to be involved in. However, certainly that was an invitation uh, to go and teach in a seminary in India. So we did that, took my family there and was there for five years. And it was really while we were there that I began by teaching the Old Testament to men and women who were very much in a totally different culture from the one I'd left behind, the Indian culture with all the surrounding realities of Hinduism and uh, gods, many gods, uh, fertility cults, all the kind of stuff that you read about in the Old Testament, that some of the missional aspects of the scriptures began to make much more sense to me. And so I began to think through uh, how do we read the Bible for people who are going to be needing to use their Bible in the context of the front face, the coal line of Christian, Christian mission. So when I then came back, and this is sort of the end of that story, came back to the UK in uh, 1988, I then joined All Nations Christian College, which as I said, is a mission training college, cross-cultural training. And so all the teaching that I was doing was for people who were either already in or moving into cross-cultural mission service. So missiology uh, was the third area to kind of be uh, an arrow in my bow or my quiver as it were. Um, of both the Old Testament and ordained ministry, and then missional thinking and writing. Hmm. Well, you mentioned uh, becoming an Anglican priest at the invitation or prodding of someone else, and it's my understanding that the late John Stott uh, extended a different kind of invitation to you, and that was to serve at Langham Partnership, uh, where you've been since 2001. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about our listeners who, even though I gave a little bit about what this uh, Langham Partnership is, I wonder if you can just tell us more about its history and its work and its mission and what you oversee in your role. Mm, yeah, thanks, Kristen. Well, first of all, to go back to where you started, uh, John Stott himself, dear brother, I mean, as you say, he's now the late John Stott. He's, he died in 2011 at the age of 90. Uh, really, I mean, I'd, I'd known him personally since 1978 when I was just recently after my doctorate and was into Old Testament issues and ethics and so on. And he invited me to speak at a conference on social ethics, uh, evangelical social ethics in the UK at that time. In, in the 1970s, um, evangelicals were getting more and more committed to holistic integral mission, the, you know, that the gospel must relate to culture and economic and political issues. And John Stott was very much our hero. So I'd known John uh, through those years. So then when we came back from India, uh, in 1988, he asked me, first of all, to become one of the trustees of what was then the Evangelical Literature Trust, 
um, which was one of his ministries. The other was the Langham Trust. And so again, I was involved with that aspect of his work, um, the, the books and so on that he was having sent to the majority world, to the Global South. And so then after my 13 years at All Nations Christian College, around about the year 2000, I was thinking of a move and wondering, you know, what should be next for the next phase of my life. And I wrote to John Stott uh, to ask, and he then invited me to consider taking over the leadership of the ministries that he had started, which was the Langham Trust and the Literature Trust. Um, and so with a considerable foreboding in some ways, because it, was sort of, it wasn't as if he was the CEO of a big organization that already had a job description and everything else. It was kind of taking over from him a vision um, and some ministries and then seeking to give it um, structure and shape and organization. So what Langham does, and by the way, the word Langham, uh, it's just the name of a street in London. <laughs> it doesn't actually mean anything. It's where his church was, still is, All Souls Church, Langham Place. So when he started these ministries, he just called it after the street in London, uh, Langham Trust and now the Langham Partnership. Um, basically it's because what Stott observed was that the churches outside the West, which we now often referred to as the majority world or the global south, basically the great continents of the South, Africa, Asia, Latin America. A, it's where the majority of the world's Christians live. So, you know, the church in America and in the West is basically now marginal to world Christianity. We are somewhere about 25% of those in the world who call themselves Christians. But what John Stott observed was there's this great growth of the church outside the West, but often it's growth without depth, without uh, resourcing, without pastoral training, without books and so on. So the Langham Scholar Program was providing funds for men and women to do a PhD, a doctorate in theology, and then return to their home country or continent and teach. So he had a great vision for the teaching of future pastors that they should be, there should be teachers who were both godly and evangelical and committed to the scriptures, but also academically at the highest level. So that was the theological education. The second program was Langham Literature, which was getting books into the hands of pastors, but now increasingly trying to facilitate the creation and publication of books by majority world authors, that is from Africa and Asia, for their own context and in their own languages, but also where possible to bring those books and that voice to the Western Academy and Church as well, so that we gain some of the riches of what God is doing in other parts of the world. And then thirdly, uh, the program called Langham Preaching, which is really trying to encourage uh, the standards of biblical preaching. That is not just preaching stories or preaching themes, but genuinely taking the text of the Bible and preaching it and expounding it well. And so Langham Preaching is now working in about 90 countries, uh, launching movements and trying to change the culture uh, of preaching in different countries around the world. Uh, now almost entirely led by national and continental leaders who are indigenous to their own context. Uh, it's not all being done by any means by, by Western people. So those are the three programs and best place to find out is just through the website which is just Langham L-A-N-G-H-A-M, langham.org, O-R-G, and you'll find everything there. You uh, recently just spoke today, a few hours ago, to our students at a Global Voices event, which is sponsored by our Global Center, and the title of your lecture was The Great Story and the Great Commission, Reading the Whole Bible for Mission. 
You also have a book, which by the time this podcast episode has released, it will have already come out, brand new book called The Great Story and The Great Commission, Participating in the Biblical Drama of Mission. Uh, so I'm wondering, both from just the perspective of the book and then also your lecture today, what are you trying to argue as the way, uh, regarding the way that we read scripture as it relates to missions and the Great Commission? And then I am hearing this uh, word, the uh, reading the Bible for mission or the biblical drama of mission. How do you understand that word? Big question uh, and lots in there. Uh, yes, I should just say, I suppose, uh, to make it perfectly correct, the book is published by Baker. I'm sure they'd want me to add <laughs> yes. that. Yes, it's the great story. And the, and the great story, of course, means the story of the whole Bible, treating the Bible as one whole story. And what I mean by mission, first and foremost, is the mission of God. Um, part of the problem with a lot of the arguments we have about mission in, in the church today is because we keep on being very anthropocentric. We think of mission as something that we do. We go out and be missionaries, and then we have to ask, what is the mission of the church? Which is a good question to ask. We need to, we need to get there. But I think we need to start by asking, what is God doing in the world? And the Bible as a whole story tells us that. It tells us that here is the God who created the world, who saw the world go to rack and ruin through our sin and rebellion, but who's chosen not to abandon the world, but made a promise that he would bring blessing to all the nations, to Abraham, and then pushes that story through the whole of the Old Testament until the coming of Christ, and then sends the disciples out in mission to go to all nations as he promised Abraham until he returns and brings about the new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. So it's a story which takes us from creation to new creation as the story of God, the story of mission, his mission, his purpose. And then God calls us to participate in that as God's people. So for Israel of the Old Testament, they were called to be a light to the nations, not initially to go anywhere, but simply to be the people of God, to preserve the worship and the name of the Lord, to demonstrate his character and his nature and his revelation in trust until through the Son of God coming, the incarnate Jesus of Nazareth, we are now then commissioned to go to the nations to bring that blessing to the world. So I think the importance of reading the Bible as a whole for me is that particularly those of us who are evangelicals, we, we tend to read the Bible very tit-bit-ish. You know, we read a bit every day, just a little verse here or there. We have a nice promise or two, or we use the Bible just as a few proof texts for our doctrines. You know, um, or if we're very interested in mission, we just use the missionary text, so-called, you know, the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel or Mark's Gospel and Luke's and so on. Uh, and we think that mission is just about those afterthoughts of Jesus at the end of the Gospel when, you know, he says, I'm off to heaven. What are these guys going to do with the rest of their lives? Well, hey, why don't you go and be missionaries? You know, so mission becomes a kind of end thing at the end of the Gospels, whereas I want to argue that actually, if we really take the Bible as one whole story, then God has had this purpose and plan all through history from the very beginning since we fell into sin. And therefore, our participation is basically saying to people, get into this story. Don't miss out on the party. You know, this is what God is doing in the world. So get involved, get into the story, and then live it out in your daily work, your daily life, your marriage, your home, your family, your sport, your leisure. And also, if God calls you uh, into various other forms of ordained pastoral or cross-cultural missionary work and so on. But whatever it is you're doing, get into the mission of God and belong to what he is doing, because that's the story, that's the true story of the world. Well, I encourage our listeners to go to Amazon or Baker's website, find your new book, buy it, read it, 
And then your Global Voices lecture should be on our YouTube channel at Beeson Divinity. You can go and listen to Dr. Wright give that um, lecture from earlier today. Uh, when I was looking through your books, uh, it struck me that you also write about Jesus from the perspective of the Old Testament. Uh, one of the questions that our students wrestle with is how do the Old and New Testaments fit together? Um, can you say a few words about uh, the Old and the New, how they relate together in Jesus Christ? Thank you. Yeah, again, a very perceptive question. and It's one where people seem to me to go to two opposite extremes, both of which I think um, are, are, well, not necessarily wrong, but misleading. One is to say, well, now we have the New Testament. The Old Testament is exactly that. It's all old, the clues in the words. You know, we don't need it anymore. Uh, it's a bit like uh, the, 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 the rocket booster that carries the capsule into space. And once the capsule's gone, uh, you can let the rocket rocket drop away so forget the old testament and that i'm sure is is wrong because for jesus and the apostles the old testament was simply their scriptures it's it's part of the scripture and paul says it's all inspired by god and it's all useful and profitable the other extreme is those who want to say well i, I i'm i'm told that the old testament is quotes all about jesus in other words it's all leading to him and so they have a very christ-centered understanding of the whole bible which is good but then they go back to the Old Testament and they're trying to find Jesus everywhere. Like, you know, where's Waldo? You know, the, you read a passage of this, Jesus must be in here somewhere, so I've got to find him. And again, to me, that's often misleading because it treats the Old Testament non-historically. It doesn't, it doesn't accept the fact that this is a journey that leads to Jesus. Jesus isn't there yet. Except, of course, in the sense that obviously the God who is revealing himself in the Old Testament is the God whom we now know as the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the whole of God is there in that sense. But Jesus is the name of the human being who was born of the Virgin Mary, in which this God of the Scriptures becomes incarnate. And if you find Jesus all over the Old Testament sometimes, I think you lose the uniqueness and the unprecedented nature of the Incarnation. Um, which is theologically, I think, misleading. So what I suggest in my book, Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament, which is a significant title, it wasn't finding Jesus in the Old Testament, it's knowing him through the Old Testament, is to show the way in which the New Testament itself, like particularly Matthew's Gospel, but all the rest of the New Testament, they see that the Old Testament is what provides the story that leads to Jesus. Without the Old Testament narrative, Jesus is a bit like E.T., you know, he just drops in. But who is he? What's he come with? It's the Old Testament story which he comes to fulfill. But it's also the Old Testament that makes God's promise that Jesus then keeps. So the whole Old Testament is declaring to us that the God who is the creator of the world and the redeemer of Israel is on record as having promised that he's going to come, he's going to do this, he's going to do that, he's going to save the world, and here is Jesus who does it. So without the Old Testament, you lack uh, a sense of what it is that Jesus has come to do. And then thirdly, who is Jesus? Well, we say he's, he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the Lord, he's the Good Shepherd, he's the King. You know, all these words that we have to talk about Jesus, they're all from the Old Testament scriptures. He's the Son of Man, he's the Son of God. Whatever way you talk about Jesus, you'll need the scriptures of the Old Testament to understand those phrases and the concepts that lie behind it. Um, and then finally, it's the Old Testament that reveals to us the God whom Jesus embodies. And I put it that way around because 
one of the problems Christians have with non-Christians is, non-Christians say, what do you mean Jesus is God? Jesus never claimed to be God. He didn't, he didn't stand up with a placard and a halo saying, hey guys, I'm God. Because the, the word God in English is just an Anglo-Saxon monosyllable, G-O-D, it's generic. It, it doesn't have any content unless you say, well, which God, who God? And the point about the Old Testament is that it reveals this is the God who has revealed himself. God says to Israel, you were shown these things, Israelites, the, the Exodus, the redemption, you were shown these things so that you might know that Yahweh is God and there is no other. It's the God who is the creator, the redeemer of Israel, the God of the Exodus and Moses and David. It's this God revealed in all his compassion and love and justice, etc. This is the God who now walks among us in Jesus of Nazareth. And unless we get that straight, we'll always just argue over, quotes the deity of Christ, yes or no, when we haven't even defined what we mean by deity or divinity. So we need the Old Testament in order to understand all of those things about Jesus and then the purpose of why he came, his death, his resurrection, uh, and his plans for the future of the world. So those are some of the ways in which, in that particular book, Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament, I've tried to explain these things. Thank you, that's helpful. Well, I want to pivot just a bit and um, here you reflect on God's work in the world. Uh, hearing about your work with Langham, hearing about how you spent time in India, I would imagine you have um, a lot of relationships and you're up close and personal with people and stories of how God is raising up His church developing leaders at work in the world. And sometimes for us uh, in the West, we can be so isolated or we get fixated on the, the stories that are negative <laughs> happening in the world. I wonder if you can just give us uh, a glimpse into some of the stories that you're hearing about and the people that you're meeting through your work about God's work mm. uh, in the world. The question then is knowing where to start. <laughs> um, we all know about the war going on in Ukraine at the moment. Um, a few years ago, I think it was 2018, I was in Ukraine because we have Langham scholars there, that is, uh, men who received their doctorates and are teaching in seminaries in that country through Langham. And I, I visited them, um, some in Kyiv itself, uh, Ukrainian Evangelical Theological Seminary, uh, and another down in Odessa, right on the Black Sea, which has been bombed. Um, and we have Langham Solos. And I have this tremendous sense of hope because they're there doing amazing stuff in what at that time seemed to be a country that was, you know, discovering itself, was liber liberated and so on. And then tragically, we have this invasion and this war. But what I hear from these men, because they're all still there, uh, they're still serving in, the, in that country, and some of them have had loved ones killed on the front lines. But what we hear, they're, they're using those seminaries as, as hubs for refugees. They're taking cars with loads of supplies and going to the front lines and to cities that are being shelled. They're bringing people out, getting them free. They're risking their lives. Uh, and I receive these reports almost daily um, from these men whom I know and, and women too, because one of them is a, a sister. Um, and, and that gives me a great sense both of humility but also of admiration for how these men who have all this academic training, 
but they're using it also for what I would regard as gospel ministry because they're seeking to be good news to people in the depths of their pain and their suffering. And of course, they're able to bear witness to their faith and to Christ because many of these folk that they're dealing with are people who would, uh, who would be Orthodox uh, Christian in the, in the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. And they're taking them Bibles, in some cases having services of Holy Communion in the ditches with the troops. Uh, and they send me photos of that and it brings tears to your eyes. Similarly, um, we know about the, uh, the war in Syria over these last uh, 10, 50, 10 years or more and the exodus of Syrian refugees into Lebanon. And we have Langham scholars in Lebanon and support a seminary there, the Arab Baptist Theological Seminary. And many of the churches in Lebanon reached out to these Syrian refugees fleeing from the war from a country which had been at war with Lebanon for many years. This was their enemy, reached out in love and compassion with food and clothing and help and so on. So many of these Syrian refugees who of course came from Muslim backgrounds who would never otherwise have had a chance to hear the gospel end up in Christian churches uh, and many of them come into faith in, in Christ. And I, I say to myself, well, that doesn't make the Syrian war or the current earthquake or the war, it doesn't make that good. These are evil things, desperately evil things. But God has the power to bring good out of evil so that even these things can serve the cause of his kingdom. And we in Langham have seen some of our sisters and brothers uh, in those circumstances uh, reaching out and doing quite amazing things. That's one level. I'll give you another story. Um, there's a, a friend of mine called Rico, Rico Villanueva, uh, who is a pastor in the Philippines but he then also became a Langham Scholar and did his PhD in, in England and then went back. And then in the typhoons and the terrible flooding that happens uh, in the Philippines, realized that the churches there kept on singing happy songs, even though he, there was some sense in which they had no way to find a language that would express what they were actually feeling inside, which is deep grief and pain and bereavement and so on. And so he did his doctorate in the Psalms of Lament and has actually written a book called It's Okay to Be Not Okay, um, and has become a bit of the reputation of being the lament guy, he calls himself now. But he is not only a fine scholar, a biblical scholar, and a pastor, and himself has suffered in these situations, he is now our commissioning editor for Langham Literature in Asia. That's to say, he is now seeking out writers in India and East Asia and other places who have got something authentic to say and seek them to get them into publication and get books written, which can then be available to those people and also if they're in English or can be translated into English to be available in the West. It's fascinating, isn't it, to talk about books being translated into English <laughs> rather than the other way around, but that is uh, in some cases what's happening through Langham literature. Mm, that's so encouraging. Well, even in just the stories you told and even your own story, I'm encouraged and I hope our listeners are encouraged to hear that uh, we don't have to think about uh, vocations like scholar, <laughs> author, uh, pastor in, in these separate buckets, but mm -hmm. to see how the Lord uses all of it and how important theology and the study of scripture is to gospel work on the ground. 
um, we sh those two shouldn't be divorced. So um, thank you for that encouraging word. That is absolutely true. Um, the gospel itself is intrinsically holistic. It, it's, it's the good news of Jesus reaching out to people suffering desperately bad news uh, and then being his hands and his feet in that situation. And when the church does that and reaches out in that way, um, God does stuff, God enters in and the Holy Spirit draws people to Christ. But that's been true all through the history of the church. The first hospital in the world was created by a, a, a bishop in Turkey, Cappadocia it was called then, uh, Bishop Basil, it was actually called the Basilea, in about 360 AD, in the fourth century AD, uh, shortly after the Roman Emperor had begun to accept Christianity. And he set up this, almost a city for lepers and people suffering from all sorts of diseases to apply medical techniques to them. Uh, it was interesting because he had read a lot of Greek medicine um, uh, and they're, they're from Galen and, and so on. It's fascinating that uh, even in those days there were some Christians who didn't like this use of pagan medicine. They thought this is not this is not really Christian. So even back in those days there were those who were sort of anti-science, even if it was too pagan. Um, but he did, he persevered and he set this up. And so it's always been the case that Christians have reached out, as Jesus did, to the poor and the suffering and the needy and the sick. Uh, with the love of Christ. Uh, and that has then been, as it were, an embodiment of the gospel, in which then the gospel as words, as speech, as a message, as a story, can be heard and received and then responded to by faith and repentance. So that's also partly what's in my convictions and in some of the books I've written. Beautiful. Well, we always like to end these episodes by asking our guests what the Lord has been teaching them that they wouldn't mind sharing as a word of encouragement. Uh, so I wonder if there's something that you could um, share with our listeners uh, that would uh, encourage them as it has encouraged you. Mm, thank you, yes. Well, the older you get and the more the world goes the way it's going at the moment, sometimes it's very easy to become cynical. It's very easy to become depressed. Um, very easy to become negative. And I think the antidote to that is to keep going back to the scriptures and realize that in many ways, the world is no worse now than it was back in the days of Judah um, before the exile. I mean, it's worse. There are ways in which it is. But um, I read the book of Jeremiah because I had to speak on this um, not quite recently to a, a conference. And you just look at what Jeremiah says about the state of his country at that time. And boy, it reeks of today. It, it's a country where they've forgotten God. They don't listen to his word. They are exalting worthless things. Uh, they, they're telling lies. Nobody even knows how to blush. They're not ashamed of the evil that they're doing. Uh, there's violence, there's bloodshed, there's murders, there's sexual idolatry. There's all sorts of stuff going on in that country. And you just read it through the book of Jeremiah. And what's God's answer? An equally skeptical young guy called Jeremiah who didn't think he could speak two words together. And yet God says, my answer to this country is I'm giving you a preacher. I'm giving you Jeremiah. In fact, he says to Jeremiah, I am giving you to this job. It's not so much I'm giving a job to you mm -hmm. as I'm giving you to this job. And then he says, and I will put my words in your mouth. In other words, it's both the givenness of the preacher and the givenness of the word, which then becomes the book of Jeremiah, which is both massively judgmental it points its finger at what's going wrong, 
So there's the tearing down and the uprooting, as God says in chapter 1, but there's also the planting and rebuilding because there's always hope because beyond and through judgment comes God's hope, comes the new creation, the new covenant, and so on. And so to me, you know, reading just Jeremiah, but other parts of the Bible, there always has to be this sense of realism about the evil of our world and a radical diagnosis of it, but to do so not with cynicism and negativity, but to do so with biblical hope. And hope is not just optimism. It's not just thinking, well, things will get better and better in the end. No, they won't. Jesus said they may well get worse. But it's the hope that says, in the end, the future belongs to the kingdom of God, and therefore the future is in God's hands, and God is sovereign, and so I can still trust him. Uh, and I, I find that encouraging. I find every, every morning I try to read a psalm. Um, the psalms are a tremendous strength, and they're also very truthful. And you read some of those early psalms especially, and they are so filled with anger at evil, anger at those who do wickedness and do it blatantly, and calling out for God to deal with people who are doing what is wrong. Uh, and the trouble is we don't use those psalms in church anymore. You know, we don't even pray them or sing them. Uh, we just want the happy stuff. And I think God says, you know, I'm giving you words that you can use to really express uh, uh, an angry faith in God, and I mean angry about what's happening in the world, but a faith and trust in God that God ultimately will put things right, and in the meantime we get on with doing the job of sharing the gospel. Mm. So that's something of what I've been, I wouldn't say enjoying, but something that's been meaningful to me over these recent months and years. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for being our guest in the podcast and uh, here at Beeson Divinity School. Uh, listeners, you've been listening to the Reverend Dr. Chris Wright, who is the Global Ambassador for Langham Partnership. We ask you that you would keep Langham Partnership in your prayers, uh, that you would keep Dr. Wright in your prayers, that you would go to their website to see how you can support their ministry. And listeners, um, we are so grateful to you for joining us again this week and every week. We love to hear from you. We thank you for praying for us. We pray for you. And uh, Lord willing, we will be back next week. And I'll say goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes.